Over a hundred years ago, Rosa Luxemburg combined pre-capitalist vision with post-capitalist futures. Who was this amazing woman? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. It used to be said that when Americans hear the word socialism, they stop thinking. As it turns out, young people these days are not immediately turned off. They can see that unrestrained capitalism is not only exploitive of working people who lack any say in the economy, but that here in the 21st century, this same unrestrained capitalism has caused a climate crisis, which has continued for so long profits above every other consideration, so that even the continued existence of life on Earth itself is now under serious threat. The word socialism still freaks out the majority in the United States, but countries around the world have had strong socialist parties. Why not America, which actually did have a strong domestic socialist party a century ago? Part of the reason for the abhorrence of socialism is what the word came to mean in places like the old Soviet Union. Men like Lenin and Stalin ran a brutal authoritarian bureaucratic dictatorship, which was far from the hopeful vision of socialist leaders like Rosa Luxemburg. Who? Rosa Luxemburg is one of the most fascinating figures in modern European political history and is today one of the least known. And she was also a spectacular demonstration of the liberated woman. And as we all know, history books have pretty much always overlooked the contributions of powerful women like her. Great men have for too long been the focus to our misfortune. On the last show, we talked about one such woman, Fannie Lou Hamer, an unsung, nearly unknown leader of the civil rights movement. Today, we're going to talk about this other amazing woman, Rosa Luxemburg, and her vision of socialism, which embraced, in fact, required real democracy, not the top-down dictatorship which socialism has been mistaken for. She became such a threat to political powers, she was jailed many times and was murdered at age 49. Our guest today is Peter Yudis. Thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me, Bert. Great to be here. Peter Yudis is professor of humanities and philosophy at Oakton Community College and author of Marx's Concept of the Alternative to Capitalism and Franz Fanon philosopher of the barricades, and has published numerous journals on such issues related to Hegelian philosophy, Marxist theory, Latin American social movements, and philosophical perspectives on race. He co-edited the Rosa Luxemburg Reader, as well as the Letters of Rosa Luxemburg. He currently serves as general editor of the Complete Works of Luxemburg, a forthcoming 17-volume collection. Suffice it to say, He knows Rosa Luxemburg, even if the rest of us don't. 
though she is recognized by scholars. My guess that virtually no one listening has ever heard of Rosa Luxemburg. There's, there's a lot to talk about, but for starters, who was this young Jewish girl who walked with a limp and grew up in what's now Poland? What were the expectations for women in her lifetime, and how did she become the leader of the biggest socialist party on earth? Well, that's a great question, and the short answer to it, I guess, is she clawed her way to the top. She was woman, as you mentioned, she's a woman, she's Pole, she's Jewish, and she's physically disabled from a, a hip a problem that she had as a young child that kept her in bed for almost two years. That's oh. when she gained her love of reading, but also gained her sensitivity to suffering and the suffering of other people, and also put her in touch with nature and uh, a sensitivity to the natural environment and uh, making friends with animals and such like that when she was in somewhat debilitated condition. Um, but she uh, joined the revolutionary movement in Poland when she was a teenager at a time when Poland uh, was divided between Russia, Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm. She was in the uh, Russian occupied Poland and uh, there was tremendous discrimination against Poles, against Jews, of course, against workers, against women. Yeah. And she had a deep sensitivity for human suffering from an early age. So um, she was active in the Polish underground movement. And then she fled when she was 19 years old, when she was tipped off that the police were aware of her organization's activities and that were going to arrest her. So she did what a lot of uh, actually women, uh, Polish and Jewish and Russian women did at the time. She made her way to Zurich, uh, Switzerland, because it was the one place in Europe where women had a chance of going to graduate school and getting a PhD. And she excelled in her studies and became renowned already as, by the time she was 22 years old. As a leading Marxist economist, she wrote a very, very important book on the industrial development of Poland, her native land. But she had ambitions, now that she was had been involved in the socialist movement for some years, she had ambitions to go to the heart of the socialist movement in Europe, which was Germany. German Social Democratic Party had well over a million members. And so once she finished her dissertation, she was the first woman to get a dissertation in international studies and economics from the University of Zurich, and from Europe as a whole probably, uh, she um, moved to Berlin in 1896, and she became active in the German Social Democratic Party while retaining her activity in the underground Polish movement. For context, what year was she born? So she was born in 1871 uh -huh. uh, to a assimilated Jewish family. And unlike what socialism came to be seen as a powerful, oppressive, authoritarian state, what, what did she mean by freeing the individual. And she talked about growing grapes as a way to understand freedom and the state. Tell us about that, please. Well, I mean, she really detested capitalism from an early age, and for good reason, because she saw the amazing waste of human talent and creativity that is central to capitalism. Uh, people who are forced into these meaningless jobs in the factory or in other industries, robbed of their human potential, forced into repetitive, unhealthy conditions of labor, and not only that, living on poverty wages, impoverished, while capitalist system is creating enormous material wealth and profit as never before, never imagined in human history, and enormous economic inequality. And on top of all of that, of course, benefiting that ruling elite that was profiting from this industrial expansion at the expense of the workers by uh, defending them through all kinds of military police structures and everything else that was uh, imposing hardly authoritarian conditions of life, even within countries that were at least nominally in some respects semi-democratic. So she just had a visceral gut reaction that capitalism was an enormous waste of human potential 
at a moment when the forces of production and the technology that had begun to emerge at that time gave the promise that this would not be necessary. People could all live a decent standard of living. Uh, you didn't need this enormous uh, exploitation and inequality. Her vision of socialism was the full and free development of the individual. That is, an individual should have the freedom and the ability not simply to be free from external constraints, which is kind of the bourgeois concept of liberty, but should have the freedom to maximize their human potential. Uh, and she thought that you can maximize your human potential at your work, at your job. If you have control over your labor process, you can maximize your human potential in all kinds of other areas, in art, in connecting to nature, etc. Capitalism narrows us into these little channels that prevents that from happening. So socialism for her from the very beginning was never a hierarchical status system. For her, socialism meant the liberation of the individual in a collective process of liberation and, and overcoming the separation between the community and the individual. Mm. Uh, not for the sake of sacrificing the individual, but for the sake of benefiting uh, the community while the individual prospers. And socialism, therefore, for her, had to be democratic, because if you impose it from above, then you're actually reproducing the very fundamental problem of capitalism, which is a separation between those who do the work and carry out the orders versus those who make the rules and enforce the orders. And that very social division of labor is what she thought uh, the, uh, socialism consists of the elimination of. And, and she talked about growing grapes as, as kind of a, a, a way to understand it. What, what did she mean by well, that? Well, she, she had a very uh, beautiful sense throughout her life she would, of nature. She really wanted to be a botanist at the university. Yeah. When she getting this uh, degree at the University of Zurich, she thought very seriously of becoming a natural scientist, and then she focused on botany. And then she had that love throughout her life. As you can see from her uh, letters that I've seen the originals of that she wrote from prison, with this beautiful drawings of insects and drawings of mice in her jail, jail cell. I mean, she just had this fascination with the natural world, um, which she realized that, of course, capitalism does so much destruction of, even though this is a time when there was no ecological movement to speak of. But she always had, she had this ingrained sensitivity to nature. She had no illusion that you can change this through small localized experiments. You can't just go up to an organic farm, grow your vegetables and think you changed the world. She felt that there had to be a systemic transformation of society uh, in order to stop the, the increasingly destructive tendencies of capitalist development. And that required a strong labor movement. It required a strong labor movement that not only spoke for the working class, but also spoke for women, also spoke for national minorities, uh, also spoke for middle class people who felt alienated and dispossessed by the system in one way or another. So you needed a strong mass movement yes. that would have to constitute the majority of the population uh, that would uh, transform these conditions on a systematic level and not on a national level either. She will argue throughout that there cannot be socialism in one country. You can never create socialism in one country alone. It would be isolated and subject to all kinds of attacks from the outside and all kinds of problems from the inside. You need socialism as an international brotherhood of humanity. And while it may start the revolution in one particular country, its success depends upon its spreading to others. So then it's like a stake for, for growing grapes, the Socialist Party. And the grapes are the individuals growing up, becoming sweet, quite frankly, and having some, some freedom to, to be who they are. But you need that stake to hold up the grapes. They're not going to grow by themselves. You need some sort of a, a system there to help it out. What did she mean that there's no true socialism without 
democracy. What did democracy look like to her? We often think of democracy in very limited ways. That is, yes. representative institutions, parliaments, etc. And she was not against participating uh, in such institutions. Uh, she herself, she couldn't vote or run for office in her time because women didn't have the right to vote in Germany or in most European countries. But she fought for the right for women to vote and to run for office. And uh, she argued, along with all the other socialists of the time virtually, that there was a role to be played in winning the working class over to socialism uh, by taking seats in parliament and fighting with the capitalist interests and trying to push a socialistic agenda. She never favored socialists joining the capitalist government and taking a secondary or subsidiary position because that's a sellout that she knew would betray their principles. But she always argued that there was a, you enter whatever institutions of civil society that exist in order to push forward the, the cause of socialism. So what did democracy mean to her, basically, yes. however? It's not simply representative democracy. That was just a that was just a step towards a much broader goal. It's really connected to what Marx called in his young writings. She didn't know these writings that well, as a matter of fact, because some of them weren't published till after her death. But in his very early writings, Marx was a, called himself an advocate of true democracy. Right? Hmm. Uh, he was a radical democrat who said whose very first writings were against censorship, for freedom of the press, for freedom of religion, and religious worship. Argued that uh, anybody who suppresses such li democratic liberties is themselves uh, 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 um, monopolizing freedom for themselves at the expense of others. Marx made this famous phrase, freedom is so much the essence of humanity that nobody fights freedom, they only fight the freedom of others. And what she meant, that, that she understood that as well, the freedom of others meant the freedom of others to learn, uh, to gain consciousness, to become enlightened, and to engage in it, and to have access to all the sources that would enlighten you as an individual so you would understand what's the source of your problems and how can a future society, you know, improve upon what we have today. So the only way you can have a successful revolution to her or successful socialism is if masses of people were actively and consciously engaged in building this type of society. And since it's not so clear how you do that, right. you would need a very, very wide open free discussion and debate which could not be inhibited by any single party or any particular ideology. Uh, of course, she opposed the uh, standard, the, the bourgeois ideologists and thought they should all be rejected. But she made the famous comment later in her life, freedom is freedom for those who think differently. Yes. And if you don't have the courage and the strength to defend your position against those that disagree with you, how are you going to win over the majority of people to your, to your position? For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about Rosa Luxemburg. Who? Rosa Luxemburg. She's uh, quite an important figure in, in European history and in Western history. In fact, appreciated uh, the history of, of all cultures. And it, education was clearly very important in her life and to her. And I find it fascinating that the Trumpists these days hate education. Trump said himself said he loves uneducated people. That's the reason for that, of course, is so that you can keep people down, keep people from actually having freedom. It's hard to have freedom if you're not really educated. And as as regular listeners know, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm obsessed with the First World War. The working classes of all the belligerent countries, all of them, killed each other in inconceivable numbers. 
And at the time, the left in Europe was very divided about what was then called the Great War. Nationalism entered the bait. Where, where did she come down? How did she feel about nationalism and how workers fit in? Well, that's a complicated question. She had, uh, she certainly opposed uh, the nationalism of oppressive states. Uh, that is like German imperialism, Russian absolutism, etc. Uh, and that was true of all the socialists, of course, virtually. Uh, uh, and she was an internationalist, certainly from her first moment upon the entrance of her political consciousness. She was aware that Poland could never be free unless there was a revolution in the Russian Empire. And that revolution in the Russian Empire wouldn't ultimately succeed unless it extended to Western Europe. So she was always an internationalist in that sense. Uh, but um, And this was a principle within the socialist movement. I mean, it was written in Congress after Congress of the Second International, which was the international association of you know all the different, different socialist parties of Europe and a few outside of Europe. It was a bit principle that they paid lip service to every year yeah. that we are against war and we will not allow our brothers in one country to fight another for the sake of uh, maintaining capitalist uh, uh, in, in, interpolitical interests. Uh, and she was uh, on, you know, she was right with that, right? One of the main exponents of internationalism and anti militarism. Um, but she certainly saw that there were chauvinistic elements within elements of the socialist movement. She had to battle certain socialists who supported colonies, like German imperialism in Africa. They, Germany started uh, setting up colonies in Africa in the 1890s and created outright genocide against the Herero, Herero and Nama peoples of modern-day Namibia. She was one of the first socialists in Europe to speak out against this and denounce it and denounce fellow socialists for not standing up against this kind of thing. So she saw that there were tendencies of reformist right-wing socialism mm. that were willing to make peace with bourgeois nationalism or chauvinism or even racism, and she called them on the carpet for it. Um, but she was confident right up until August 4th, 1914, that that was a minority view within the international socialist movement, that when push came to shove, the majority of workers, the majority of socialists would not give in to that kind of an approach, and they would stick to their principles and... Uh, do what August Bevel, one of the founders of German social democracy, said. The minute that they declare war our government, we will declare war on them. That was his famous slogan. Not one farthing for this system as long as a single penny goes to pay for the military. The Social Democrats routinely refused to vote in favor of the budget, even though they sometimes had 30 percent of the seats in parliament, right, in the Reichstag. But on August 4th, 1914, all this collapsed like a house of cards right. when suddenly push comes to shove. And virtually every, with the exception of the Serbian Socialist Party and the American Socialist Party, right. I'm curious, mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of those two, uh, lined up with their national governments in the war. Now, that showed that Luxembourg, like a lot of others, she wasn't unique in this, had underestimated the extent of nationalism within the working class, reactionary nationalism, that is, and within the socialist movement in general. Because the lip service and the slogans and the resolutions saying all the nice things is one thing. But when it comes down to is uh, if I vote against the war in Germany, my party of three million people with 30 percent of the seats in parliament is going to be declared illegal and forced underground. And I'm going to probably go to jail and 30 years of work to build the party is going to be demolished. Am I willing to pay the price for that? Some of her closest allies that have been with her for years earlier, they weren't willing to pay that price. Right. And so that's what happened in, in, in the uh, what set off allowed World War One to happen. If the socialist movements 
had, so to speak, said, we rise up on general strike against the war. We refuse to participate in this. It would have been a lot harder for that that horror of 10 million people slaughtered in that war to occur. Yeah, it was just, it's still beyond belief. And, and that really, I think, in many ways defined the 20th century. It seems to me that nationalism was a convenient way to divide and conquer for the people in power, the parties in power, you know, and there were monarchies at the time, uh, of the First World War, they used that sense of nationalism to divide the working class, and it was really successful. And it, nationalism seems to still have that kind of appeal to working class people. Certainly, uh, the the general strike. Let's talk a little bit about the general strike. There's all kinds of political tools that you know one can pick up and and use at will. What about the general strike? How did she feel about the general strike as a particularly powerful uh, uh, tool that could be picked up. Yeah, just just and before I get to that, which sure, is a sure. great question, just one word on, on nationalism. Of course, there's different types of nationalism. Uh, there's bourgeois nationalism, the nationalism of the oppressed, and then there's national liberation struggles by oppressed minorities, right? Palestinians today, black Americans in the United States, etc., immigrants in Europe. Uh, and in her day, Poles, which were nationally oppressed by Russia, yes. uh, Irish, who were, of course, suffered terrible national oppression from British imperialism. Yes. Uh, on this question, she uh, argued against that type of nationalism as well, on the grounds that the working class will be diverted away from the fundamental struggle for socialism if it connects the struggle for socialism uh, with the struggle for national independence. And so she thought that the struggle for national independence, once a socialist and working class movement comes on the scene becomes kind of redundant passe and actually counterproductive now from this she was obviously directly contradicting marx and engels because one of the central pillars of marx's life was supporting the poles poles polish national struggles against russian absolutism supporting the irish and of course supporting the blacks of the american civil war he actually had a correspondence with lincoln even giving military advice to the north during the civil war that Mm. was marx Uh Uh, right right so, but she, she she said, no, that's out of date, because now the workers' movement is strong enough, we don't need these national demands. And that's very unfortunate. I think she was wrong about that, because she was unable, therefore, she, her, her position and her Polish organization, her own party in, in Poland that was underground at the time, uh, they were unable to address the aspirations that Poles had, understandably, for national independence at the same time as they wanted to fight for socialism. So her party never had as deep roots in the working class as some of the other socialist parties in Poland, which were not reformist, by the way. The Polish Socialist Party had many different wings, a reformist wing, but it also had a revolutionary wing, one wing of which split off from that party and wanted to join her own party. Uh, but she wouldn't let them do it because she said, we don't want anybody who supports, even used to support Polish independence. So she was rather sectarian on that and adamant on that opposition to national self-determination. And I think that was somewhat short-sighted of her. But getting back to the national to the mass strike, though, yeah. that's a great question because uh, she wrote far more about the mass strike than anybody probably realizes. Uh, she's very famous for having written a book in 1906 called The Mass Strike, Political Parties and the Trade Unions, in which she uh, generalizes from the experience of the 1905 Russian Revolution, which was the first nationwide or empire-wide workers' revolution, uh, a revolution led by the working class in history, it came close to overthrowing the czar, and the medium or the vehicle of struggle that the workers spontaneously came up with 
was the mass strike. They just decided, hey, we're going to have a general strike. Everybody, all railroad workers go on strike tomorrow, all bus drivers go on strike, all this go on strike, whatever, right? And they had dozens of mass strikes that broke out throughout the Russian Empire in 1905, especially, and a little bit in 1906. And she saw this as, wow. Now, everybody said at the time, well, Germany is the advanced capitalist country. That's the biggest socialist movement. They have members of parliament. They have all kinds of huge, innumerable organizations connected to the party. But the Russians don't have much of an organization. They're in the underground. Uh, Russia is backward. It's 90% peasant. What can you expect from that? But she saw this mass strike taken up by the Russian proletariat, and she said, now, this is the way to go. This is the way to bring in socialism. And when she came back to Germany, she went to Russia, to Russian-occupied Poland during the 1905-1906 revolution. Uh-huh. She wrote this book, The Mass Strike Pamphlet, extolling the virtues of the mass strike. But now we know uh, that we've been working on the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg. She actually wrote about 2,000 more pages that we didn't know about <laughs> on mass strike. Nazis articles in Polish and in German newspapers extolling it, talking about its ups and downs, how you connect one mass strike to another. We have just finished, I finished last week, uh, the page proofs for the forthcoming volume for the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg, published by Verso. It'll be out in a few months, in which it's got 600 pages of material from 1906 to 1909, most of which deals with the mass strike. And there's going to be another volume, the two more volumes, from 1909 to 1914, that is also going to be on the mass strike. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of writing she did on this. Uh, but when she did make this argument that, hey, the Russians are not backward, they're actually in advance of you, you know, highfalutin Germans, because you're sitting around waiting to get votes uh, for parliament, and these guys are on the streets actually showing how you can actually put through a socialist revolution, she got a very cold response from a lot of uh, uh, <laughs> I am not surprised you got a cold response. I, the, the, the power of the people out in the streets, you know, the, the, the government these days wants us to believe we are powerless, but we are not powerless. And the general strike is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, nonviolent weapon that can be used uh, to, to make political change. But people uh, don't often think that. And as you describe the splits within the left, I'm reminded of uh, what uh, what Abby Hoffman said so many years ago, that uh, uh, isms get schisms and go to wasms pretty quick. <laughs> yes, and well, uh, I'll just I'll, I'll just mention though, sure. two other two other instances uh, underlying what you're saying about the power of mass strikes. One was uh, W. B. Du Bois had pointed this out in his great book, oh, yes. Black Union, back in 1936, that in a certain the, uh, the, the greatest mass strike in the United States, we've got mass strikes like St. Louis 1877, Seattle 1919, so we've had our own. Yes. But he said the greatest mass strike was actually 1864 and 1865 when a half a million black Americans uh, at, during the closing days of the Civil War got up and walked off their plantations, heading for the Union Army to try to connect with them to take up arms to fight the Confederacy. In other words, they simply said, we're withdrawing from work, we're not going to work for the slave masses anymore now that it's possible that maybe we can overthrow the slave and uh, the slave plutocracy with the aid of the Union Army, uh, and um, wow. he called it he called it a general mass strike. Now Du Bois didn't know Luxembourg directly, but he studied in Germany uh, up until I think 1894. Uh, he studied and taught in Germany actually, so he knew a lot of people in the Social Democratic movement. Uh, but in any case, wherever he got that from, 
he was pointing to the indigenous roots of that's a kind of a mass strike. Nobody called it. It was a spontaneous kind of development. Uh-huh. But I also think, I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but not that much. If you think about the 2020 Black Lives Matters protest after the George Floyd killing, right, and protest against it, right. that involved 26 million people in um, uh, 2,000 towns and cities across the United States over several months. Now, it wasn't literally a withdrawal from work. It wasn't like people generally said, I'm not going to work today. Let's have a general strike and support Black Lives Matter. But it had elements of that. Yes. And the fact that you can have that emerge out of the blue, nobody saw it coming in right. 2020. This would have thrilled Luxembourg to death. Yeah. And I think one thing we learned from her is when things look the most dreariest and the most reactionary, don't be so sure it's going to be that way forever. Under the surface, something may upsurge that you had no anticipation of. Wow, it is amazing to be optimistic in all she faced. I mean, compare that to what we have now. T today, there's, you know, what we call Stalinist architecture, which is cold, austere, you know, really inhuman architecture. And it's this big structure. And people, I think, often associate Stalinism with uh, socialism. Rosa Luxemburg was a little bit different. In the early 20th century, there was something called the Dadaist avant-garde art movement, which came into being at the shock of the monochromatic, all-pervasive industrialism, which many felt crushed the human spirit of creativity. She liked to have fun. The Dadaists had humor. It, Dadaism challenged the powerful cultural order and traditional definitions of boundary. What was the role of spontaneity, such fun, you know, having a good time out in the streets like people like Abby Hoffman did? Uh, what was the role of spontaneity to Rosa Luxemburg? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question because uh, in, uh, she certainly would have been horrified by Stalinism. She never lived to see it. She didn't anticipate it. Nobody did. Saw that something as horrible as Stalinism could emerge from within the socialist movement, right? It's... Uh, Fascism emerges, of course, from the capitalist class, but social Stalinism emerges from, from a socialist working class, right? A transformation of the opposite uh, that then oppresses and destroys that working class and enslaves it all over again. Nobody saw that coming, okay? But certainly what you describe as Stalinist architecture, Stal socialist realism, yeah. all this kind of um, uh, mechanical, uh, this notion that you know, for increasing forces of production per se brings you to a new society. Yeah. She would have been completely horrified by all of that and certainly... Uh, would have opposed it tooth and nail. Now, in terms of her own uh, attitudes towards art and culture, there's going to be a volume of the complete works, an entire volume devoted to her cultural writings. Uh. Uh, so she has quite a bit. Now, it's interesting there, her cultural preferences was classical literature. She loved Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Uh, she loved Goethe above all. She loved the classics of German literature, Schiller, etc. Uh, her taste in art, therefore, you might say was kind of high bourgeois taste of art, right? Uh. So I think that her own reaction to Dadaism, uh, and I'm not defending her attitude, a possible attitude, this is a speculation on my part, sure. but she was living at the time that modern art was emerging, right? The emergence of modern art is during her lifetime. She's murdered in 1919. Mm. There's not an indication that she was particularly thrilled by any of it. Uh, she had very classical kind of traditional tastes when it came to culture. But spontaneity for her had a broader significance she was not a spontaneous in the way some people say she was. That is, that she thought that you didn't need organization or you didn't need a yeah. party. She didn't believe that at all. She right. thought that spontaneity was extremely important. But as what she says in these writings in the 1905 revolution, 
when these mass strikes spontaneously break out, she said, where did the idea for the mass strike come from? How did this manage to happen? And she says, we can't forget that for 30 years there have been social democrats, that there were what socialist revolutionary socialists were called at the time, social democrats. Later the term becomes non-revolutionary. But uh, at that time to be a social democrat for most social democrats meant you were a socialist who was for revolution. She said there was 30 years of work by Russian Marxists and socialists and social democrats to talk to peasants, to talk to workers, to ingratiate themselves in their communities, and to talk to them about the evils of capitalism, and to talk about this word called socialism. And I'll just give you a little bit of a little um, a side note here, not directly on Luxembourg, but I was told by an old Russian revolutionary once how the Bolsheviks, for instance, before the revolution, organized and within the working class, because they couldn't do so openly, be arrested if you passed out a lethal on the street, you couldn't just pass out a leaflet in front of a flyer, in front of a factory. The authorities would throw you in jail or send you to Siberia. So what they would do is in those days, they didn't have bathrooms, they had outhouses, right? And workers in the factory would periodically have to go to the outhouse to do their business. Now, nobody wants to spend a lot of time in an outhouse, right? Especially in the conditions they had then. So the Bolsheviks would sit in the outhouse for eight hours a day, passing out flyers and weeding them out to the workers because most of them were illiterate. Wow. So, so this is how they... This is how the seeds, she saw, the seeds of socialist consciousness begin to sprout through this kind of like very down-to-earth, dingy work that you have to do, and it's been done for decades, right? And then the, revo the revolution breaks out, no revolutionary socialist sort coming, but it was a kind of an indirect product of their, of their creating a kind of a humus uh, for uh, this later development. So spontaneity, in other words, the point I'm trying to get at for Luxembourg, yeah. it always requires an organization of thought. It's not mindless spontaneity. Right. Spontaneity may take forms that are unpredictable and don't fit into established patterns of parties and movements. And she was always emphasizing this. But it's not going, but it also, there's an organization of thinking that people are involved in long before they decide, hey, I'm going to go on strike or I'm going to go out and make a revolution. They're thinking about their conditions of life. Yes. So there has to be a socialist movement, not socialist parties necessarily, or she thought, of course, parties were needed too. But there has to be a, some kind of a socialist movement that communicates those ideas to people. And what we've been missing in America for a long time is we haven't had much of that. We've had little socialist sects talking to themselves, yes. uh, not talking to the mass of the American people. I hope that's starting to change. I think it may be, as we said in the beginning, that uh, young people these days are not so immediately turned off when they hear the word socialism. They don't freak out. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about an, a different aspect of democracy, the idea of democracy within working with socialism. And we're talking about a, a figure in history who's not particularly well-known, She's she was a woman, uh, Jewish and late and, you know, had some uh, physical difficulties, but she was very well read, read Rosa Luxemburg and her her influence continues. She's still revered in in much of uh, of Europe right now among the socialist parties. But uh, our guest today is Peter Yudis, who is a professor of humanities and is a real expert on Rosa Luxemburg. And she has a lot of re uh, relevance to what's going on today. I mean, in what ways do you think she was prescient of what was going on by the imperial powers 
back in her day as a new way of carving up the world? Did she see such expansion of demand as an, an integral part of the logic of capitalism itself? And further, how have we been adversely affected by this today? Today, you know, we measure economic strength by the gross domestic product. And how has, my question is, I guess, how has her vision of the commodification and colonization of everyday life made itself evident today? Peter? Yeah. Right. Uh, so one of the things that she focused on very early in her career, and this is, I think, partly because she herself was from a kind of colony. That is, Poland was occupied by an imperialist power, right? And had lost its independence by 1797. This is now in the you know late 19th, early 20th century that she's up, that she's living. Um, she developed an argument that, well, everybody knows that capitalism as an economic system is driven to expand, right? Uh, you don't go into business except to make a profit and you don't want to stay in business unless you want to make more profit next year than you made this year, right? There's an inherent drive to increase or augment value uh, uh, in monetary terms. Uh, and that's central to capitalism. Well, serious economists would have to acknowledge this whether you're a socialist or not but what she recognized what she argued for is that this expansionary drive that's inherent in any capitalist economy to increase money and profit for the sake of increasing money and profit uh -huh. regardless of the impact on people or the environment this is something which compels capitalism to exploit non-capitalist sectors of life and non-capitalist societies so you could not have capitalism without colonialism. And as a matter of fact, Marx himself said, the birth of capitalism, what occurred, uh, he called it the rosy dawn of capitalist accumulation, uh, was the uh, uh, development of a world market in the 1500s through the destruction of indigenous societies in mm. the Americas where, and the creation of a transatlantic slave trade uh, to create a global commodity market, right? Uh, so she held that it was inherent within capitalism to embark on colonialism, and then colonialism gives way to a kind of a new face of that kind of exploitation and expansion, imperialism. Yes. Right? And she said, now, every capitalist country, of course, is engaged in this effort to gobble up different parts of the world. For sure. Like in Asia, China, et cetera, Latin America, to get a piece of the action. She says it's inevitable. She says it's already in 1895. 1895. Mm. She says it's inevitable that these major capitalist countries in Europe, like Germany, Italy, France, England, et cetera, Russia, will come into collision with each other because, you know, the resource, there's only so many places to conquer in what we now call the global south, and each one wants to get as much of the pie as they can get. So she kind of anticipated what World, World War I, that it was inevitable that this kind of thing was going to happen. And this was a very unpopular view because it meant, one, you cannot have a good humane capitalism because any type of capitalism is going to be imperialistic, no matter how humane it may appear. Secondly, what it meant, it meant that Socialists had to solidarize with struggles against colonialism and imperialism. Otherwise, what was the point of their socialist endeavor? You couldn't have socialism in one country. You had to have it as an international system. Yes. So she uh, was very prescient on this question of the commodification of life is what capitalism drives to accomplish. Now, she had a whole economic theory devoted in two or three, actually, books devoted to this subject. She basically was arguing that Capitalism cannot continue to expand without non-capitalist strata and non-capitalist societies, which means once capitalism takes over the whole world and just becomes everything becomes completely commodified, capitalism would have no, no outside of itself to exploit 
and to absorb into itself, at that point, the economic engine of capitalism would run out of gas and no longer be able to have expanded reproduction. I think we're starting to see that, quite frankly. And, you know, you talked about capitalism profit for the sake of profit. We saw that very recently with that whistleblower from Facebook saying that they were all about whatever makes money, hooking young people to the Facebook site. And they didn't care what the heck it did to people. It was just, it was a way to make money. The interesting thing now is now that we do have a world that is completely capitalist, I don't think anybody could conceivably argue with a straight face that China is socialist or communist. No. I mean, <laughs> this is like, a, this is cowboy capitalism run supreme. <laughs> so we, we have everybody tied into this world commodified market. Now the question is, however, we are seeing that capitalism is running into internal barriers to its self-expansion, whether it's for the reasons that she pin pinpointed or for other reasons. And uh, there's certainly a decline in the rate of profit that we're seeing in major capitalist corporations that um, makes them want to try to exploit things even more directly to get their profit rates up a notch. But the point is, is there's only so much that they, they can do of this. The question is, does that signify that capitalism will end itself and will get suddenly socialism will arise? Or might we be seeing capitalism implode, but if there's not a conscious, explicit articulation of a socialistic alternative, well, maybe we'll have what Antonio Gramsci called an interregnum. A system is dying, but a new system is not born yet. And we saw what happened in the interregnum he was talking about. He was talking about fascism, right? When the old is dying and the new has not yet been born, all kinds of crap shows up. And that was Mussolini and Hitler. And I see Trump as part of that interregnum today. The deindustrialization of America and a lot of other things globalization has just devastated the American working class and frankly disorientated a big chunk of it. So the question is, where are the socialists? Are we talking to them? Are we talking to them? Are we talking to the black activists? Are we talking to the feminists? Are we talking to the LGBTQ movement? Are we trying to talk to people and have that engagement that there is no ultimate solution to these contradictions and all these issues as long as capitalism remains with us? And I think young people are, as you mentioned earlier, increasingly realizing that what future is there going to be in right. 50 or 100 years if we, if we keep with the system? That is clearly happening. Here we are in the 2020s, and the, ex the very existence of many forms of life on Earth is under incredible threat. And though untethered capitalism was booming in her time, in what ways was she also oh. prescient about this existential issue? And, and tell us about her vision as it relates to the threat that we're facing today of real destruction of, of the climate. Right. We have to realize the historical period she was living in because socialism is a beautiful idea. But as you know, by mentioning things like Stalinism, it can be distorted to mean a lot of different things. Right. And it's gotten a sullied name in a lot of quarters because of that. Even Hitler had to call himself a national socialist, not because he was a socialist, because he wanted to appeal to the German workers who thought well of socialism. How did most people understand socialism in the late 19th century, right up until the first decades of the 20th century? And some still might think that way today. Well, they think of socialism as a society that suppresses free markets, has regulated markets, has state control of the economy, and abolishes private ownership of the means of production in favor of nationalized property and statified ownership of the means of production. Unfortunately, that's what socialism came to mean in the 20th century. And in her time, to a certain extent, that was what it meant as well, because people hadn't seen the results of simply viewing socialism in that narrow way as, oh, capitalism is a market anarchy, socialism is planned economy. People didn't anticipate Stalinism and see that a planned economy 
that replaces market anarchy could actually in some ways be worse than yes. private capital. They didn't see that at the time. Now, we can. So we can no longer simply repeat the kind of articulation of socialism that was present in the second or third internationals. And that was present, frankly, in Rosa Luxemburg to a large degree. As great as she was, she didn't go deep enough in terms of articulating an alternative. Why? Because it was the standard view, which she articulated very often, that, well, the job right now is not to talk about, you know, what's going to happen in the future, what socialism is going to look like. The job now is to mobilize, to bring this damn capitalist system down, and that will emerge of itself as we get to reorganize ourselves after capitalism is overthrown. But we can't afford that kind of perspective today, 100 years later. uh, We have to articulate the alternative to capitalism for people today and say, yes, of course, we want to get rid of unregulated markets. Of course, we want to get rid of this profit drive and profit motive that destroys the environment, but not for the sake of nationalizing property and organizing exchange relations, but creating new human relations, beginning at the point of production, at your work site, outside the work site, in your community, in society as a whole, in our relationships with nature, what the Bolivians call bon vivir, right? Living well, right? Indigenous peoples of Bolivia talk about this concept of returning to the indigenous notion of living well. On that level, I think Luxembourg has a lot to say to us because of any socialist of her period, she had more to say in appreciation of indigenous peoples and indigenous societies and appreciating their communal pre-capitalist forms of social organization Many times she points out, she says, that gives us some indications of how to organize society on a more massive scale and in a different way, perhaps, in the future. Yeah, I think that's very, very interesting and quite really apropos. In fact, this show is being recorded on Indigenous Peoples Day. And Mm -hmm. back in the late 60s, many in my generation had romanticized visions of non-Western cultures, uh, dressing in Native American costume, the Beatles looking to Maharishi, and such societies have routinely been dismissed as uncivilized, inferior. Colonialism was sold as a benevolent mission to these poor, backward people. So fascinating to me that, that as the Earth's environment is so seriously threatened, she was perhaps once again prescient about the unique value of such pre-capitalist societies without necessarily romanticizing them. Talk about that a little bit more. She began to get very, very interested in this as a result of what I mentioned earlier, her connection she makes between imperialism and capitalism. That capitalism has to engage in colonialism and imperialism. It's not just a, polit- a mistaken political policy that vote another guy into office and will change. Right. No, it's part of the organism of the system to destroy, occupy, destroy, undermine indigenous social formations. Mm. But then she she didn't know that much about indigenous social formations. But in 1907, she was invited just on a fluke. They had the Social Democratic Party of Germany in Berlin had a party school for to train by party activists. It was not a very big school. It was not like an academically accredited institution or anything. It wasn't aiming to be that. It was a way to to train trade unionists and party activists, teach them Marxist theory, teach them history, geography, anthropology, etc. And she taught at that school three days a week from 1907 to 1914. And she gave lectures on political economy, ethnology, anthropology, pre-capitalist society, indigenous peoples, the Middle Ages, feudalism, uh, the transition from feudalism to capitalism. But the point is, is that she looks at these societies, she studies the Australian Aborigines, she studies Native uh-huh. Americans, looks at like the indigenous peoples in the Philippines and in Malaysia, Indonesia, etc. And she pays close attention to their communal forms of organization. She says, you know, they have their own plan kind of society. They have their way of sharing. 
they have their way of generating economic surplus, but not at the expense of the community. Now, of course, it's kind of on a low technological level, you can say it's isolated. There's all kinds of you know things that we can't directly transplant to the modern world. But she says there's much we can learn from yes. that. However, she was very pessimistic that they would survive because yeah. she saw how brutal was the exploitation, especially of German imperialism when they went into Africa. Uh, and how quickly they commodify these societies and destroy the indigenous cultures and heritage and everything else, she thought it was like almost virtually inevitable that they would all be ground under the wheels of capitalism, but hopefully socialism will emerge from the revolution against capitalism uh, nevertheless. I think she was a little bit over hasty with that. When we compare her writing on the non-Western world to Marx, Marx was a little bit more open and said, you know, we don't know. He said, it's possible that these pre-capitalist formations can survive even after capitalism comes in. And we see a lot of evidence of that in the world today. If you look around, yeah. it may look like capitalism runs everything. But you've got in Bolivia, the Ayul, this yes. communal organization in the highlands. You've got Chiapas and the kinds of communal self-development that's emerged in sections of the countryside. It's indigenous to much of Africa as well. So there's still something to build on there, at least conceptually. And I do find it fascinating that after the disastrous fires in Australia, somehow a lot of white Australian ruling class discovered what the Aboriginal people knew about preventing fires. You know, a lot of that old knowledge is still quite useful, more applicable than ever, perhaps. And of course, being, you know, America and we like celebrities and personality, <laughs> Her personality, in what ways was she a spectacular demonstration of the liberated woman? What about her as an example of the liberated woman, you know, well over 100 years before uh, liberation seemed to be, become popular? A, a biographer of, of Luxembourg and my philosophical mentor in many respects, Ryd Dunievskaya, who wrote a book on Rosa Luxembourg, Women's Liberation, and Marx, coined a nice phrase that I think catches uh, the response to your question, which is that she was an, a truly original personality. <laughs> she was one of those kind of figures in history that, you know, she stands out from the rest in a lot of respects. One of them was she was fiercely independent. She was not afraid to get up in, in, in front of, I mean, you got to realize she's a, she's a very short, four foot 11, disabled Polish Jewish woman, yes, right? Yes. Uh, from Warsaw, shows up in Berlin, the capital of, you know, you know, the socialist movement in Europe at the time with all these big shot intellectuals. And they say to her when she walks in, they can see she's got talents. They say, well, we've got a woman's section of our party, you know, a woman's <laughs> exterior. We, you know, we can work in that. Uh -huh. And she, no way, you can go to hell, you guys. I would have do what you're doing. I would have be arguing with you guys. I would be fighting for the position in the party leadership, not for power, because she couldn't have a formal position being a woman. She wanted to be essentially involved in the theoretical development of the socialist movement. So uh, she didn't want to be pigeonholed into the so-called woman question. So some people think that that means she was not interested in feminism, but believe me, she gave hell to a lot of men. She encountered a lot of male chauvinism within the leaders of the uh, democracy, uh, including August Babel, who wrote a very famous book called Woman Under Socialism. Uh, years before Luxembourg came on the scene, he was still alive until 1913 and worked with her. But in his private correspondence, he refers to her many times as a poisonous bitch. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> She's telling that he doesn't know much as, as much as he thinks he does. Now, in terms of her personal life, uh, from very early, she was in life. She was attached as a, well, about 20 years old, certainly, if not earlier, to Leo Jogisz, which was a fellow Polish Jewish revolutionary who also had to get himself smuggled out of Poland and ended up in Zurich. Uh, and they were lovers for some 20 years. 
uh, strictly monogamous. Uh, she loved him deeply. He was also kind of her editor as well as her political colleague. They were co-founded the, the Polish uh, socialist organization that she helped lead. I mean, she was a very, he was a very, very important figure in his life and very underestimated. Nobody's ever written a real serious biography of him and nothing in English because uh, he didn't write very much. And it's very hard to track down the life of somebody who didn't leave much behind. He wasn't a writer. He was an activist. The most important things in history, I think, tend to be hidden. And she died at age 49. Not a natural death. Why did she die? Who killed her? What were the circumstances? Do we know who gave the orders? Yes, we definitely do. Just one more word, though, on her personal life. Oh, sure. Is that she and Yogesh's had a very, very bitter breakup in 1907, not long after the Russian Revolution of 1905, because now she really gets a major stature. Now she's known around the world for her writings on the mass strike and the Russian Revolution and participating in it. And somehow that begins to fracture their relationship, because now she's kind of stepping on his ground. He was the organizational guy, the organizer. She was the theoretician. Now she's doing both. So it falls apart very, very bitterly. Now, uh, she had a very active love life after that. Uh, I tracked down at least four or five of her lovers. And uh, one was Hans Diefenbach, who she really was deeply in love with. He was killed in the trenches in World War I, and that really devastated her for uh, quite a while. She never stopped thinking about that till the end of her life. She had a love affair with her best friend's daughter, Clara Zetkin, who was the head of the socialist women's movement in Germany. Konstantin Zetkin was 20 years younger than her, and she had an affair with him. So uh, she had a very active life, and she lived, once she broke up with Yogesh's, yeah, she, she experienced her life as a woman through her own free choice and didn't care what people thought about her. Freedom. Uh, what a concept. Yeah. So how did, how did she die, and, and who killed her? The short answer is her former comrades killed her. Oh, no, not directly. Um, there was, of course, the socialist movement in Germany. The, vast, the majority of it supported World War I. And so she broke from, the, uh, from that section of the uh, German Social Democratic Party, and sought to organize a new party. But very few people were supporting her. The vast majority of people were supporting the pro-war faction of the socialists. Uh-huh. But she organized this group in the underground during World War I called the Spartacus League, named right. after the great slavery rebel from ancient Rome. Uh-huh. Um, and they had a very, it was a very small organization at first, and the socialist party was supporting the government, they had ministers in the government, because they had a national unity government now to support the war. But then in 1918, the sailors went on strike. The workers joined yes. into a mass strike, and they brought down the monarchy. Uh, so this reformist pro-war socialist stepped in, and uh, they were brought into the government. The Kaiser basically said, we're going to turn over power to you to make sure we don't end up with the radical socialists, like Lenin uh-huh. and Russia. Uh-huh. So the Russian Democrats have basically handed power in a silver platter. They take over, and now Luxembourg says, these guys, you know, are our enemy. They supported the war, and they just want to consolidate, like, a capitalist system, a democratic capitalist system, so-called, uh, under the name of socialism, but not meaning anything substantial in terms of what really it's about. It's not a really exit from capitalism that they would promote. So uh, she agitated for a second revolution, that the November 1918 revolution uh-huh. which brought down Kaiser and brought the Social Democrats to power, now the right-wing Social Democrats, there should be a revolution against them uh, to do what Lenin did in Russia, although she didn't support what Lenin did after he got into power. That's a different story. 
his undemocratic practices, but she supported the Bolshevik seizure of power. That's an important thing to keep in mind. We've come to the end of of our hour, unfortunately. We could talk a long time. I do think a lot of her vision still has relevance for the future. If people want to read more ab- about uh, your work as uh, you know with regard to uh, Rosa Luxemburg, there must be some uh, way to do that uh, on the internet. Uh, yes, you can uh, go to two sources in particular, rls.org, which is the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung in Berlin. Uh-huh. And you will see that they have a, a number of talks, lectures, and writings by me on Luxembourg on their website, rls.org. You can also go to imhojournal.org. That's a, a interna- journal of the International Marxist Humanists, which I'm associated with. And a lot of my writings on Luxembourg, but also on other subjects, are on that website. So that's imhojournal.org. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting. Uh, a lesser known, but really important person in the history who has some significant relevance for the future. Thank you so much, Peter Yudis. Okay, thank you very much. Great to be here. There's a new world to come and near Singing loud and clear Revolution Feel that rumbling along the ground It's a mighty sound Revolution It's the sound of the morning dove People all joining hands in love So hear the good times roll, revolution. Every man, woman, child on earth gets a free rebirth, revolution. Life is love and it's here and now. We want more than the laws allow. Bring us peace and we want. by sin and war revolution you've been living from day to day now get out of the way revolution love and freedom for every man want it now any way we can you don't have any I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week, subscribe. Don't miss a single one. On the website, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher.